Visualize Visual Hall VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacU Health with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Not multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Richard Madonna. In this episode, Dr. Madonna reviews the newest technology and cutting edge treatment for glaucoma. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press the like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell. Also, please leave comments. Be sure to watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube Movies and Shows. And tune in to our brand new radio show, Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Central Time on AM 1280, The Patriot. All right, let's go now to medical treatment versus uh, filtering surgery. Uh, the Collaborative Initial Glaucoma Treatment Study, SIGITS. And how does medical treatment compare to filter surgery and the treatment of newly diagnosed glaucoma? Yeah, so- and This is an interesting study. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, but the bottom line is, you know, certainly in this day and age, you know, with all of the effective medications we have and SLT, it's hard to imagine us in too many cases sending patients for trabeculectomy and the initial diagnosis of glaucoma. But now we're talking 20, 25 years ago. And so certainly in some areas in Europe, there was a discussion of whether we might consider doing glaucoma surgery as opposed to medicine. Now, why in heck would we do that? Well, because surgery effectively lowers intraocular pressure. We take after the initial cascade of medicines that are needed after surgery, we take the patient out of the equation, they may not need drops. So maybe we improve quality of life and adherence, and perhaps we reduce the risk of further progression of glaucoma. So that was kind of the, the rationale behind SIGINTS. So it was a comparison of medical treatment versus filtration surgery. But in both treatment arms, 
there was a lot of aggressive treatment within there. The other interesting things about thing about SIGIDS was that there was a calculated target pressure. Now, I never remember what the calculation is because there was a SIGIT score and so forth based on visual field. But one nice thing about SIGITs that they did was they individualized the target pressure based on the start pressure and the degree of damage. And that's exactly what we should be doing with our target pressure. So I don't, I can't even remember what the calculation is. I'm, I have a slide here in front of me that tells me what it is, but I've never ever used it for a patient. But I do base my target pressure on degree of damage and height of intraocular pressure. So I thought that was kind of a cool thing that they did with SIGITs. Um, you know, bottom line with SIGITs, a couple of things that came out of it was SIGITs showed that fluctuation in intraocular pressure was important. Both um, if you look at the measures of intraocular pressure that we tend to use, mean pressure, height of pressure, and fluctuation. Well, actually, SIGIT showed that all of those things were important and that fluctuation, patients who fluctuate more are more apt to progress. And how can we best control fluctuation? Well, the best way to control it is with the trabeculectomy. Certain medicines do a good job, SLT does a good job, but the best way to control fluctuation is with, um, with medicine. But in the bottom line, at five years, there wasn't that much difference between, in, in terms of, of visual function, there wasn't that much difference between the medical, medical group and the surgical group. Why? Probably because both were treated very, very aggressively. Regardless, the medical group, if there was any sign of progression or elevation intraocular pressure, or they didn't meet their target, they were treated more aggressively. So that's important to remember. So it really showed us that aggressive treatment early on is useful. The downside, can't do that with everybody, you know, because the adverse reactions, the cost are not gonna be tolerable by the patient. But it did tell us that lowering intraocular pressure was important. And a lot of people who had the surgery weren't very happy. In yeah, I mean, you know, there's gonna be side effects from the surgery, not surprising. Glaucoma surgery has side effects, particularly in the you know, first number of months after the surgery. You know, the drops, the, the uh, foreign body sensations, the dry eye and so forth. So all of those things have to be calculated here. So I think the bigger take home out of SIGITS is aggressive treatment is useful, but is it is initial therapy with surgery or even aggressive medical therapy, is that the right way to go? You know, I'm not sure that, um, you know, the results of SIGITs are all that useful. Um, it did, and it didn't really show that uh, surgical therapy was better than- was really better, yeah. Better than drops. Visual function. Actually, there was a very interesting, about 20 year follow-up out of SIGITs that I think is useful. It looked at adherence to drop therapy in, in, the SIGITS, um, in the SIGITS cohort. And it was one of the first studies to show that people who, as self-reported, have good adherence, I'm just kind of simplifying it, but good adherence versus poor adherence, the people in the poor adherence group had about four times the rate of visual field progression over, I think it was six 
or seven years than people self-reported as good adherers. So not surprising. I mean, that's why we want our patients to take their drops. But we actually have some data now that tells us, at least it's, it's self-reported in the self-reported SIGITS cohort, that good adherence slows down the risk of progression. Again, not a surprise, but it's nice having the data. Right. And it also showed that every millimeter of mercury lowering the pressure. And again, oh. yep. So we still have that. Um, available to us. And I think that's interesting because, I mean, when you measure pressure, it doesn't seem to be that accurate. I mean, it, it's close. I mean, how accurate are we really getting, when we measure pressure? You're getting to one of the things that's very dear to my heart, you know, working with students. When students work with me, I always want to tell them, when you get a measure, a pressure of 14 on Goldman tonometry, please train your brain to think that pressure is somewhere between 12 and 16. You know, that's kind of a better way to think of it. Goldman is what we use, right? It's been our, it's been our reference standard from, you know, since Hans Goldman developed the Goldman tonometer in the late 1950s. But it has lots of variability and lots of things that affect it. So just recognize this variability of the test. So when you think of it that way, 12 to 16 is a lot different than thinking it's 14.00000. And you then realize that you have to take multiple pressure measurements to really make decisions based on the pressure. And that's okay. But, you know, I, I think it's really, you know, you really talk, spoke to something that I try to drill into people um, because I think it's important to know that. Well, the next study, we really learned a lot of information about pressure from Aegis, the Advanced Glaucoma Intervention Study. And this was a surgical study where they, where they looked at the difference between laser surgery, ALT, versus filtering major surgery, trabeculectomy. Uh, but even though they compared those two, we found a lot about pressure and a lot about fluctuation in, the, in this yeah, study. We, we certainly did. So a couple of things about Aegis. The, the name is a misnomer because it says advanced glaucoma intervention study, but it didn't necessarily have to be advanced glaucoma. It was more the maximally tolerated medical therapy intervention study. So when patients were, were, were progressing, despite whatever we call maximally tolerated medical therapy, which in the late 90s, you know, was horrific. It was multiple, multiple medicines. We know now that, that patients can't adhere to that. And then they looked at what was the best sequence of follow-up in those patients. Trabeculectomy first, followed by laser, followed by TRAB, you know, and medicines being part of that paradigm, or laser first, trabeculectomy, then another trabeculectomy. So it, that was purportedly the rationale behind the study it was the major objective of the study um, was to look at that sequencing of laser and trabeculectomy. And so they found, you know, that in over seven years, white patients did better with um, laser first and black patients did better with TRAB first. I'm not sure that that really ultimately matters but I think what really mattered in the Aegis study was what was happening with intraocular pressure in these patients who had 
maximally tolerate, you know, finger quotes, maximally tolerated medical therapy and had pressure lowering. And what happened after their pressures were lowered in terms of their, um, in terms of their um, visual field progression? I think that's the important thing. And Aegis has been a study that has been quoted many times, particularly by pharmaceutical reps, and I think misquoted many times by many people. And um, to kind of summarize it, and I think I bet you many people listening have heard this data in a variety of ways, but essentially they had four subgroups. And they broke this in after follow-up, they looked at four subgroups. Patients who had X number of, well, let me, let me get the exact wording um, on the subgroups. I just want to make sure I have it exact. So the four subgroups are patients whose IOP was below 18 at every follow-up visit, patients who had 75 to 99% of their follow-ups had pressures less than 18, patients who had 50 to 74% of their follow-ups less than 18, and patients who had less than 50% of their follow-ups. So in other words, you had a group of patients whose pressures were kind of above and below 18 half the time, and then you know a little bit more, more were below 18, a little bit more, and finally a group never below 18. And what's presented to us is, Make sure you keep the pressure below 18 because in that group, on average, there was, there was zero visual field progression. On average, that meant some people progressed, some people actually got better. But what's forgotten about is those patients who always had IOP below 18, their average pressure was actually 12.1. So they weren't anywhere near 18. So of course, their average with an average pressure of 12.1, of course, they weren't above 18. So we're not saying just a wee bit below 18. We're talking about a lot below 18. So that tells us that those patients that who have, as defined, advanced glaucoma, and again, it was more a, a really a, a pressure and treatment definition of advanced glaucoma. Those patients, if we can keep their pressures really low, then they're going to do well. And we kind of know that. But it's still important to know it. So, you know, I, I've always questioned when I've been told, well, you know, if we keep everybody below 18, you know, that's not really what this says at all. I mean, the patients who were below 18 at every follow-up visit had, a, had an average pressure of 12.1. So way, way different than 18. Right? But it does tell us that if your pressure is below, even 14 was most of the people who were below 14 was the big numbers in this was 18, 14, and 12. And if you're below 14 on every visit and, and close yeah, to 12, an eight, it's 14, you know, right. You know, you don't progress. Right. So that brings us back on to average, the other studies. Right. Right. These patients. And again, their definition of advanced glaucoma wasn't truly advanced glaucoma, but I think you can, kind of massage that to say that in patients who are uncontrolled and who's uncontrolled, the patients with worse glaucoma, those patients, if you keep their pressures low, they will do better. And that's important information. It's hard to keep them low, but those are the patients who are going to 
lose vision from glaucoma. So it's important to, um, to treat them aggressively. I think that's what I take out of the HSC. And how about the fluctuation? Yeah, you know, fluctuation's interesting. And it, again, fluctuation was important. So, you know, fluctuation is interesting because if you look at studies looking at fluctuation, you have to look at how they define fluctuation because some of the studies actually take patients who progress and continue them along in the study after they're treated more aggressively. So if you're treated more aggressively, you're going to have more fluctuation. So it's going to show that, and those patients though are not going to progress. So those studies are going to show actually that fluctuation doesn't matter. But in the studies where we remove the patients who have progressed and then are treated more aggressively, it does show that fluctuation matters. So I think what it means to me, as I look at these studies and I look at fluctuation, I try to think about lowering fluctuation as much as I can. And I also take into account nighttime intraocular pressure where pressure has a tendency to be higher and therefore you have a greater amount of fluctuation. So I try to recognize, first of all, that low, patients with lower pressures tend to fluctuate less, but I also wanna use medicines or treatments that tend to reduce fluctuation or have greater effects over the entire 24 hour period. And that's medically everything but beta blockers or alpha agonists because they don't work well at night. And SLT and TRAMs, and we have evidence that some of our mixed procedures work well during the nighttime period. So I think fluctuation matters and I try to keep more of a steady state. If you think about diabetes and other chronic diseases, we don't want metrics to go all over the place, we prefer them to be more steady state. So that's why I look at the data for this. Do you think there's any benefit to doing diurnals, having a patient come in early in the afternoon and later in the day? You know, we were just the same thing. In, our, in our glaucoma elective, you know, back in when we started, I think we did a lot of serial phenometry. Um, I do almost no serial tonometry. That doesn't make it right, by the way. First of all, there's a couple of reasons for that. I see patients in the morning. I don't have afternoon patients. You know, I'm not in a private office where your patients can come in at any time of day. I tend to see patients only in the morning. Now, that's not a good reason, but it is a reason. But I also know that in the majority of patients, the pressure is highest first thing in the morning. So I tend to try to get pressures in the morning. Secondly, my experience with serial tonometry has told me that there aren't a lot of big excursions of pressures. And if we go back to our discussion before about the variability of Goldman tonometry, um, so if you have a test that's plus or minus two, and if a patient walks in and they're 16 in the morning and 18 in the afternoon, is that really meaningful or is it just the test? So I don't think I get enough bang for the buck to put the patient through coming back. We have other practitioners here at SUNY who disagree with me. We've had that discussion many, many times and it's okay, that's not a problem. What I do think is important though is getting a number of pressures um, and perhaps even at different times of the day. I think that's important um, to take into account the variability and also to try to detect peaks and troughs. Um, because we know the IOP has lots of excursions. There'll be data coming out 
in the next few years, actually some of it's been published regarding implant implantable IOP measuring devices. And they, it's actually approved in Europe. These are implantable devices put into the, uh, into the ciliary sulcus as, after cataract surgery. And it looks at intraocular pressure over, let's say, a 24-hour period. Right? Actually, it's over longer periods. But let's say it's just a 24-hour period like a Holter monitor does for blood pressure. And we know just from the initial data from these devices, the IOP is all over the place, even on any given day. So even if we don't measure it, it gives me a sense that you know, we should be thinking about trying to make the interactive pressure more of a steady state than jumping all over. And we do have some devices that help us with that. Many people are familiar with the iCare Home device. The iCare Home device allows us to measure intraocular pressure over the course, not necessarily of steady over 24 hours, but over a number of times over the course of the day for X number of days. You know, I'm not going to get into the actual prescription because I'm not sure there really is one of what the right, right number of days is. So these devices are out there, and I think they're going to be useful in getting to this issue of fluctuation. I think there'll be new instruments that'll be coming out that'll give us even more accurate measurement of intraocular pressure rather than Goldman tonometry. Yeah, accurate's an interesting word. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, and again, when we talk about accuracy, we have to talk about you know the real intraocular pressure, like what's inside the eyeball, and you know we have no real direct way to measure that. Um, you know, at least in terms of clinical care. You know, we can do it to some degree in research and so forth. So the real question is, do we have devices that are closer to the real intraocular pressure? We know that Goldman has a lot of variability. We also know it's affected by central corneal thickness. So do we have devices that are closer to the real intraocular pressure? And I think we have at least one right now. And, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I know we're try to be careful in talking about um, uh, individual devices and individual companies, but we do have the ocular response analyzer. Um, I don't know if you want, if I can mention- Sure, you. please, please, please. Reichert, Reichert's ocular response analyzer. It's an air puff tonometer that now has different algorithms built in that measure a number of different things. One thing it measures besides what we can call an IOPG, which is a Goldman equivalent, should be close to the Goldman pressure, you know, an applinated pressure, is the IOPCC, or the cornea compensated intraocular pressure. So that takes into account the viscoelastic properties of the cornea that influence the pressure measurements, which if you read Goldman's work from the 1950s, he knew all this. The guy was a genius. He just didn't have a way to take it into account. He could just tell us about it. So the IOPCC has been shown across numerous studies to be closer, we believe, closer to the real intraocular pressure and a better predictor, therefore, of progression of glaucoma. There's a great editorial in the British Journal of of ophthalmology, really an op-ed piece would probably be a better way to call it rather than an editorial, uh, written by Gus Gizzard, lead author Gus Gazard, who was the first author of the light study, and David Friedman's on there from Harvard, um, who say that perhaps it's time for a change from Goldman tonometry to 
in this case, the IOPCC or something better than the IOPC, because they seem to be better predictors of glaucoma progression, probably because they're closer to the real intraocular pressure. Since you brought that up, can you explain corneal hysteresis? Yeah, so the other thing that the, uh, that the uh, ocular response analyzer measures is the thing called corneal hysteresis. And corneal hysteresis to me is the ability of the cornea to dampen a pressure that's placed upon it. So the cornea like, you know, absorbs some of the energy. So that the way corneal hysteresis is measured is if you think about the way the air, an air puff tonometer works is, the air blows in, it flattens the cornea. That's what the Goldman equivalent is. And it actually indents the cornea. And then the cornea springs back. And at some point, it springs back where it's flat again. But the pressure measurement at that point in time is less than the pressure measurement of the cornea, of the, uh, of the flattening when you went inward. That difference in pressure is the corneal hysteresis. So the corneal hysteresis then is, you know, is kind of the ability of the cornea to withstand a pressure placed upon it. Okay, so what the heck does that have to do with glaucoma? Well, if we think about what the cornea is made of, and we think about what the optic nerve or the lamina cubrosa is made of, and the sclera surrounding the optic nerve is made of, it's the same stuff, right? So we believe that corneal hysteresis is a biomarker for what's going on in the back. So if the hysteresis is low, the cornea has less ability to withstand change. The hysteresis is higher. It has more of an ability to withstand change. And we know from hundreds of studies that lower corneal hysteresis is associated with a greater risk of glaucoma development and glaucoma progression. Conversely, higher corneal hysteresis is associated with a less risk of glaucoma development and progression. So it's a very powerful tool that many people, optometrists and ophthalmologists, are not using. So it's all built into one in this single device. You think if you use this test, you still have to do Goldman tonometry or you Yeah, great, great question. That's a really, it's a fundamental question, really. And I think you do because every glaucoma study is based on Coleman phenometry. And I think that's one of the reasons why more people haven't bought into the ocular response analyzer and the IOPCCs and corneal hysteresis is, we don't quite know how to use it. And I use it all the time. And I still sometimes wonder, okay, how does this all fit in? When I get a Goldman pressure of 23, you know, in a con, excuse me, in the context of, you know, corneal thickness of 520, I kind of have a good gut feeling of what that means. And when I treat it and the pressure goes down to 18 or 16, I kind of know what that means. And I guess still many of us are still kind of getting used to how all of this fits in. So I still think you need a Goldman pressure because every single study is based on Goldman tonometry. Thank you for that. Uh, one of the things in this in in uh, in the study, it showed that after doing filtering surgery, there was about eighty percent chance of getting cataracts, and that brings us to our next study. The eagle has landed, ah. and uh, and to see how effective cataract surgery, clear cataract surgery, with somebody with primary angle closure glaucoma, the eagle study. Yes. And so okay. we have somebody that has narrow angles. 
and uh, we take and they have narrow angle glaucoma, a primary uh, angle closure. Chronic glaucoma. angle, yeah, and they, primary, they find a primary angle closure glaucoma, which in this case is really chronic angle closure glaucoma. And we remove the lens, and what happened? Well. The question always was, if you think of your patients who have chronic angle closure glaucoma, which means that they have narrow angles and have developed either synechial closure or elevated intraocular pressure or both, the standard treatment has always been laser peripheral iridotomy and then medical treatment as needed. That's been the treatment since I was a student. That is, not changed. So over the course of the last 15 or so years, we've seen in acute angle closure that taking the lens out is probably more effective than the treatments that we've had. Because think about it, you know, the lens, as we, particularly as we get older and particularly in eyes at risk for angle closure, the lens is pushing on the iris. There's increased pupillary block, it's, you know, it's narrowing the angle peripherally. So it kind of makes some sense taking the lens out. So that was the, what the EGLE study was all about. The, the inclusion criteria of patients with um, primary angle closure glaucoma or chronic angle closure glaucoma with pressures greater than 21 or to increase the number of, and to increase the number of patients in the study because they were having trouble reaching the number of, the end that they needed to power the study. Um, they have patients with primary angle closure, meaning synechial closure, high pressure, but no glaucoma damage yet. Obviously glaucoma damage means change to the nerve. Those patients could have pressure up to 30 um, or greater than 30. So those are the patients in the study. It's a, it's a multi-center trial done in uh, uh, Europe and Asia. And they compared LPI versus clear lens extraction. Now, they didn't have to have a cataract because if they had a cataract, you take the lens out anyway. So it's not, you're not really doing, you're not learning anything. So these are clear lens extraction. Patients had to be older than age 50 for obvious reasons. You don't want to take a clear lens out of patients with, who, are, who you know, are early presbyopia. So these are patients older than age 50. And they compared those two. And to make a long story short, what they did was um, they compared one, IOP lowering and clear lens extraction one. They compared cost effectiveness. Clear lens extraction was better based upon the parameters that they used over time. And really the, clear, the, the cost is based upon the initial cost of taking the lens out versus the laser, but also the medicines that needed to be added over time to maintain the pressure. And finally, quality of life. And they actually found no difference in quality of life, but I think everyone agrees they didn't use an appropriate quality of life indicator. They used the, European, the EQ5, which is a European thing that looks at generalized quality of life rather than a glaucoma or eye-specific quality of life. And I think if they used the right quality of life indicator, they would have shown that quality of life is better with, by removing the lens as well. So, the recommendation of the study is in patients who meet the criteria and who have clear lenses and are over the age of 50, that removing the lens is a better approach to treating these patients than laser peripheral iridotomy. And how about plateau iris? How does that figure into this? Yeah, in this particular group, it doesn't. Plateau iris is extremely interesting 
um, condition. By definition, plateau high-risk configuration. Um, well, let's, let's backtrack. When we look at angle closure, primary angle closure, what's the reason for primary angle closure? It's mostly the relationship of the lens to the iris and increased pupillary block, which increases pressure in the posterior chamber, which makes the, puts the iris in a concave um, uh, configuration, and that narrows the angle. And if it's done acutely, of course, we get iris bombay and blah, 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 the pressure goes up to a million, but that can happen chronically. But in plateau iris, what we see is, if we just look at the central anterior chamber depth and the relationship of the lens to the iris, it's relatively normal. The problem in plateau iris is the ciliary body. The ciliary body is thick and anterior anteriorly displaced. So what you see is a periphery, in the periphery, the angle is, is narrow, but then centrally is not. So another way to define it is if you do an LPI and the angle remains narrow, there's probably some degree of plateau iris because the LPI equalizes the pressure on either side of the iris um, and essentially eliminates pupillary block or the effects of pupillary block, but it doesn't do a thing for plateau iris configuration. So that's where that comes in. How common do you think plateau irises? Oh, you, you took the words out of my mouth here. <laughs> um, I think it's a lot more common than we think. And I think a number of recent studies have shown that if we look at subsets of patients who have what we think is um, you know, regular pupillary block-induced narrow angles or angle closure, that they have some amount of plateau. And I think the flip side is probably true too, that patients who seem to show plateau iris configuration probably have some degree of, of increased pupillary block. And that's why, even though theoretically, pupillary block shouldn't do anything for patients with plateau iris, it usually is done first because there probably is some risk, uh, some amount of relatively pupillary, uh, of relative pupillary block in patients who have plateau iris. That's great, thank you for that. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon, embrace the science. The All Eyes Visual All VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. So that brings us to the ZAP trial. Oh, I love it. Are we doing too many laser peripheral iridotomies? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if you just look at the study, the answer is clearly yes, but we can talk about the controversy regarding that. So let's backtrack here. And this is, I think this is really important study for optometrists because, you know, optometrists see tons of patients who have on routine examination, you do a Von Herrick, you say, oh, that's a narrow angle. You do Gonio, that's a narrow angle. Where do they go? Well, the safest bet has been, so, and again, goes back to when you know, we were trained, they got LPIs. Because there's been no clear-cut study to tell us 
that LPIs are better than watchful waiting. And so that's what the ZAP studies was designed to answer, was or is, is prophylactic LPI, because this is prophylaxis, this is preventative treatment, it's prophylactic LPI versus no treatment in patients with narrow angles, which is the better approach. That's Explain what an LPI is. I'm yeah, sorry. Laser for people that don't know what that yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Laser peripheral iridotomy. Back in the day, it was a sector iridectomy, but a laser peripheral iridotomy is a laser treatment in which laser energy is used to blow a hole in the iris. Um, and the object of the laser peripheral iridotomy is to equalize the pressure on each side of the iris, which causes the iris to flatten out and you know, reduces the risk of pupillary block and reduces the risk of the angle of the iris crowding the angle. It doesn't always open the angle, but it certainly reduces the risk of the development of acute angle closure or chronic angle closure. So that's the treatment. It is, and this is extremely important, it's a relatively, more than relatively safe procedure. I was going to say relatively benign, well, benign is in the eye of the beholder, I guess, you're putting a hole in the iris, but it's a safe procedure. You know, very few side effects, a little inflammation, you know, obviously, you know, if you aim it wrong, you can get a problem, but that's not usually the issue. Most patients do extremely well with laser peripheral iridotomy, and that's what's important as we discuss the implications of the trial. So in the ZAP study, which was done at a single center in China. Um, I just want to pull up, I want to get the numbers, but let me see if I have them. Just so, I always want to make sure, sure I give you the right numbers. I don't even know if I have it here. Okay, so this is going to go off the top there because I don't have the exact numbers here. That's okay. Um, maybe you have 189 patients. Yeah, I sent you, I, I'm looking at an older slide set here. So the ZAP study was done at a single center in China. So that's always an argument. It's one place and one subset of patients, but huge numbers, 889 patients. And what they did was very interesting. Patient had to have bilateral narrow angles. They treated one eye with prophylactic LPR, and they had to have no glaucoma and no high pressures. Otherwise, it wouldn't be prophylactic. So they treated one eye and didn't treat the other eye. So the patient served as their own control. 889 patients. It's a lot of patients. And what did they find? Well, on the surface, it really seemed like LPI was magnificent because what they found was a 53% absolute risk reduction in the development of reaching one of the endpoints. And what were the endpoints? Acute angle closure, development of peripheral anterior synechiae in one clock hour, which is 30 degrees on gonioscopy, or pressures, repeatable pressures above 21. Those are kind of standard endpoints that we might use clinically. So I love the endpoints. I think those are great. So 53%, that sounds great. It's kind of like the OAT study. You know, you got a 60% risk reduction of treatment versus no treatment, but only 9.5% of the untreated patients actually went on to develop, only developed glaucoma. Same idea here, 889 patients, but only a very small number of them reached an endpoint. 
only in the LPI group, only one patient had acute angle closure. But in the treatment group, or in the no treatment group, rather, the natural history group, if you will, only five, I believe, went on to have acute angle closure. So of 889 patients, you only had this very, very small number of acute angle closures. So, but that's not, you know, chronic angle closure is as big a problem. So that's acute angle closure, the real bad ones. Four of those came after dilation, which tells us that we still have to be a little bit careful in dilating patients who have very narrow hands. Now, the other endpoints were elevated intraocular pressure, and there were more of those and more of those in the treatment group. And if we look at one clock hour or more of peripheral anterior synechia, I believe there were 30 in the control group and 15 in the treated group. So we reduced synechia formation. But what's important to the patient? Development, actual development of glaucoma. We don't want these patients to develop, you know, disc or field loss. So the take home from the ZAP study, if you just look at the numbers and not look at anything else, and of course that's not what we're gonna do, but the take home from the ZAP study is, yeah, we're doing way too many LPIs because there just isn't enough treatment benefit of doing LPIs on everybody. It probably is more beneficial to examine these patients periodically and look for the development of high pressures, sneakia, or even more importantly, the development of glaucoma. Okay, so that's great. We're done. No, we're not done. Because now you've got a whole group of, of optometrists and ophthalmologists working together to manage these patients. And we're saying, well, we have this really, really nice treatment that's safe and effective that we've been using for the last 35 years or more than that, really. And now don't do it. Don't do it. Just watch the patients. Well, what's going to happen? Somebody's going to get acute angle closure. And then all hell is going to break loose. You know, the patients don't lose vision. And, you know, I don't want to get into litigation and so forth. But it's possible that this becomes, you know, something involved with litigation because they're going to say, well, 35 years experience tell us you should have done an LPI on me. What zap study? That's ah, crazy. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is, although the data would tell us that doing an LPI is not needed on a population basis, the individual patient in the chair, you're going to make who... Who's the one who's going to close? And that, I think, is what we're missing. We don't have enough information to tell us which patients are actually going to be the ones who are going to close or develop chronic angle closure. We have some hints of that, but we don't have that really built into our day-to-day -day algorithm that we see patients in our office. You know, we don't look at iris rolls, an increase in iris thickness as it dilates and lens vault. Not everybody's doing that. Those are hints as to who will be the most likely to close, but it's not something we do day to day. So until we get a better idea of really identifying which subset of patients are truly the ones that are gonna be closed, I don't see the ZAP study actually changing much of what we do. I think what it's done for me is, I saw a patient on Monday. 
who was the, the question being asked was, should this patient have an LPI? And maybe 10 years ago, I might've sent her for an LPI, but I thought based upon what I know and looking at her metrics and looking at her anterior segment OCT and her gonioscopy, I thought, I think I can watch you and see you periodically. And we educated her on the signs of angle closure. But you know, those patients who have the clear cut, really narrow angles, where the ZAP study would say the odds of them closing are very small, I'm not quite sure <laughs> whether that's gonna really change it. And how many years was, did they follow the patients for? Yeah, so the patients were followed for six years. The original was supposed to be three years, um, but they didn't have enough. They didn't have enough patients reaching the the endpoints because there were so few patients out of the 889 patients who actually reached the endpoint that they extended out to six years. You know, maybe six years isn't long enough. Yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. Maybe we follow these patients for 15 years and a whole ton of them close. Well, then great, then we should continue because LPIs are relatively safe procedures. I think one of the interesting things with this study, to, to get into the study, you couldn't have any PAS. And the definition of when somebody diagnoses PAS is variable. You're using a four mirror lens. And if you can't push open the angle, then they have PAS. So maybe their criteria of PAS was different than our criteria. Yeah, maybe. You know, these are obviously, this is one center, right? So, you know, they're going to have their idiosyncratic approaches to patients. But, you know, there were also, even though it was at one center, we had some, you know, David Friedman was part of that study. And to me, he's the world's expert on angle closure. So, you know, with his epidemiological background and, and um, glaucoma background, you know, I, I think the quality control was probably quite good in that study. So let's turn the light on and talk about the light study. Should we be doing SLTs as first line treatment in our open angle glaucoma patients. And that's what the study wanted to know. So what did we find out? Well, first of all, I'd say yes. And I think that that's probably been the way people have thought for a long time. But the, the light study, very interesting study, published as with the, feel the importance of these, the light study, the Eagle study, and the ZAP study, were all published in Lancet, a major medical journal, not an eye journal, which is kind of interesting that, that they were felt to be so important. They were published in that journal. So the light study um, was a study done in the United Kingdom. So that's first and foremost, it's important to recognize that it was done in the UK. Why is that important? Because the study looked at cost. And what do we have in the UK? We have a national health service. So recommendations in the UK are when they are made, those are kind of, they cut across a national health service, which is controlling, you know, cost and payment and so forth, very different than what we have in the United States. So the question that was asked in the light study was comparing SLT versus medicine as first line treatment followed over 36 months. Now, some of you may say, well, this rings a bell. And it kind of does because we did the glaucoma laser trial in the late 80s in the United States comparing ALT to medicine. And that showed that ALT was at least as good and probably better than medicine. And then we had the SLT med study done in 2010. 
same type of thing. And it showed that there were less needed, there, there were less changes needed to the initial treatment. In other words, IOP was controlled better with SLT as opposed to NEDS in the SLT NEDS study. So these studies were done in the US, but the light study has gained a tremendous amount of traction because it looked at quality of life, it looked at IOP and it looked at cost. And to make a long story short, um, you know what, and I, I misspoke myself before and I'll, I'll correct myself in a moment. Um, what the SLT, or what the light study showed was SLT was more cost effective as measured with pounds, um, you know, as opposed to US dollars. But, you know, at about 30 months, the cost of the medicine became more than the cost of the SLT. It showed that um, IOP control was better with the SLT as measured not just by the actual IOP, but the modification to treatment of the need for more medicine. That the visual field stability was the same, although a follow-up study showed that actually more patients lost control um, with medicine as, a compo as compared to SLT. And finally, in this study, they did not show a difference in quality of life. I misspoke myself before when I said that that was with the Eagle study. That was not true. The Eagle study showed that quality of life was better. Um, it was this study where they used the EQ5, the, the European uh, quality of life study. And most people think that the quality of life would be would have been shown to be better with the light in the light study and with laser as opposed to medicine if they used a different uh, a different measure of quality of life. So I apologize for that. I misspoke myself before. But the bottom line is, and the take home on this, and the major recommendation, and that's the last line of the abstract. The major recommendation is that SLT should be offered as first line treatment first-line treatment, supporting a change in clinical practice. That is a huge statement. And in a country like uh, the UK or in the UK, um, making a statement like that says a lot because that's what the National Health Service is going most likely to follow. And therefore, most practitioners are going to need to follow that to follow guidelines in place. The implications of it have been is that we are seeing many more SLTs done as first-line treatment and SLT being used more as first-line treatment, I think, in the U.S. I think that's been measured by someone. This has gotten tremendous traction. So at SUNY, are they using SLT as first-line you know, I said that to my students. <laughs> I did, uh, did a 45-minute glaucoma update to our fourth in-house fourth years. And I said, if you look at our data in-house, many more SLTs in the last few years. Yeah, it's first line treatment. You know, back when I can remember back in the early stages of my career, I, I think it was, it was probably Larry Alexander, the late great Larry Alexander, giving a talk. And he said, you know, if you ask practitioners, if they got glaucoma or primary open ended glaucoma, would they prefer medicine or at that time ALT as their first line treatment and most picked laser? And I think even more so now. So why wouldn't we offer that to them? And what percentage of people would you say respond to SLT? Um, lots will respond. The higher the pressure, the greater the response. So people should recognize if you're doing SLTs on lower 
pressures. I, I hear a lot of practitioners say, well, my patient's on three medicines and I use an SLT and it only drops at a point or so from 15. Yeah, medicine will do the same thing, just a little bit. But if it's pressure's 30 in its first line, you're gonna get a big bang for your buck. So a great majority of patients will respond to SLT. I think the, the thing that people always cite is, well, it loses effect over time. Well, it kind of does. 50% of SLTs will go back to baseline in five years. That means 50% won't. But you do get a drop in the efficacy of the SLT over time. Kerry, you said we can edit? Yes. Can we take a two-minute break? Yes, please. And then, because I've got to run to the next one. Amazing. Okay. Here we go. We're back. So, so uh, in your experience, if someone with the SLT, it doesn't work, uh, is it worth trying again? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's so few patients it doesn't work on. Um, you know, so the question I would have is, you know, it's an SLT, you know, did the physician actually, you know, put the laser burns into the right area? Now, these are large spots as opposed to with the ALT. I would probably move to another treatment though. You know, if I know that the, that the treatment was done appropriately, you know, I, I'm, I guess, when you define not work, you know, I, I assume this is a follow-up visit at about six weeks where we affect, where we expect the effect to um, be in place. You know, I'd probably get one more IOP measurement. It is possible that, you know, you're in a peak trough and you caught the patient at their peak IOP. So I'd bring them back one more time before I made the decision that I probably didn't get this treatment effect. And I think that's, that's a great, you know, a, a bit of wisdom for everyone to not make treatment decisions on one intraocular pressure because IOPs have peak trough, as we well know. If you catch the patient, if you treat them, you know, at the trough pressure and then you follow them up at the peak pressure, it's going to look like the medicine didn't do anything or the, in this case, the SLT didn't do anything. Right. Yeah, if, I, if I'm truly, if I truly think that the procedure was done appropriately and I've done enough time after the procedure or taken enough IOPs after the procedure. I think just a couple is probably useful in this case, then yeah, I would probably. And I, think, and I think in the study about 87 to 80% were responders. So about in the, in the, yeah. in, in the yes. ZAP. Yeah, in, in the light study. In the light, in the light study, study, yes. So, well, I appreciate that. I, I'm gonna ask you just a couple more questions before I let you go, if that's okay. Now, let's talk about some of the new medications that are out there. Well, the one, the, the rokinase inhibitors. Tell me your experience with those medications. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if we think about the medicines that we've had available to us for our entire careers, you know, most of the medicines that we've had have not worked on the area of the eye that has the greatest impact on the regulation of intraocular pressure, and that's the trabecular meshwork. You know, we've had pilocarpine. Well, pilocarpine physically opens the angle, and we know pilocarpine works. I mean, if anybody's used it, pilocarpine works. But, of course, it has its downsides four times a day and the side effects and so forth. We had propene and the epinephrine derivatives, and you know those had terrible side effects, but they also affected the trabecular mushroom. So for many years, we had pilocarpine, 
laser trabeculoplasty, and really no medicines that actually worked, again, on the area where the IOP is regulated, and that's the trabecular tract. So the rokinase inhibitor, rokinase, um, is a signaling molecule, and one of its jobs is to work within the trabecular meshwork to regulate uh, aqueous outflow. And one of the ways it does that is by the, uh, by the, uh, by regulating actin-myosin and the way actin-myosin interact. So we know that if we inhibit rokinase, we will increase aqueous outflow. That's essentially, to, to long story short, um, the effect of rokinase within the trabecular meshwork. So now, rokinase inhibitor acts to increase aqueous outflow, but it also does something else. We know that it also affects um, blood vessels. And it also has the effect of decreasing venous pressure. So if we think of the outflow pathway, we go back to the anatomy that we were all taught, you know, the trabecular outflow pathway leads to Schlem's canal, to collector channels, to aqueous veins, and eventually dumps into the venous system. And the venous system, you know, the pressure in the venous system, eight, nine, 10, somewhere in there, is really what limits our ability of medicines to lower intraocular pressure. So usually with medicine, we can't get the pressure much lower than 10, 9, 8. Why? Because that's the venous pressure. And so that's, you know, providing pressure against the outflow. Rokinase inhibitors also reduce venous pressure. So that is another way in which they lower um, intraocular pressure. So the ro there's only a single rokinase um, inhibitor on the market, Nitarsidil, and it does have this ability to um, reduce intraocular pressure both by reducing or um, resistance to outflow or increasing aqueous outflow and also decreasing venous pressure. And do you use much uh, rokinase inhibitors in treatment of your patients? Well, that's a loaded question. And I'm, we may have to edit that one because in New York state, I mean, the answer is yes, but in New York state, I'm not supposed to. Ah, okay. Because Let me rephrase that question. In the clinic, are the glaucoma specialists who are treating glaucoma uh, using a lot of rokinase inhibitors and what are the side effects? Yeah, so if we're, if, if we're looking at um, the use of, of rokinase inhibition, I think just like with any new drug, we're starting to see an increase in the utility of this drug. Uh, we are starting, you know, and there's always insurance issues and so forth that come into play when a new drug hits the market. Um, we are starting to see a vast increase in the use of rokinase inhibition um, because I think what we see is number one, we like the fact that we can, we can impact aqueous outflow. We like the fact that we can get pressures even lower by lowering venous pressure. Um, 
we tend to see that the rho kinase inhibitor works well in patients with lower intraocular pressures. And, you know, those are very frustrating patients. So, you know, there's a lot of positives. Now, one thing that rho kinase inhibitors also do is that they cause hyperemia. And, you know, on a, it, depending upon how you want to interpret the studies, a fairly substantial number of patients will get a certain amount of hyperemia. But hyperemia tends to decrease with time. It tends to occur episodically. So I think, you know, if patients are told beforehand to anticipate, particularly at the start of treatment, that they will get a certain amount of redness from the rope kinase inhibitor, then they can be prepared for it. Um, but yeah, it could be, it can be a substantial side effect for some patients, although the, the relative number of patients who discontinue the medicine is relatively smaller. And I think, but it's important, you know, it's always about, you know, um, preparing your patients for what to expect when they start any medicine, you know, it's gonna sting a little bit, might make your eyes red and so forth. So like with any other medicine, you're playing risk benefit ratio and, you know, educating your patients. Another advantage of, the, of Natarsidil is that it has been combined in a, in a fixed combination medicine with uh, latanoprost. And I think we can mention the trade names. Sure. So, Aroxetan. Uh, is called Aroxetan. Uh, is, ro is Ropressa, and the combination with the Tanaprost is called Roclitan. And Roclitan, I think, I don't think anyone could argue with the fact that it's the, uh, the most potent topical IOP lowering medicine that we've ever had. Latanoprost plus Natars, fixed combination. It's the only fixed combination of a prostaglandin that we have in the United States. In other countries, there's um, prostaglandin plus beta blockers available, which we do not have. So a highly efficacious medicine. So, you know, we're seeing the penetration of these medicines more and more. And as we get used to how well they work, which patients they work best on, the increasing insurance companies, just like any other medicine that's hit the market. And as we learn best how the side effects need to be presented to patients and to follow, you know, we've now got another class of medications that work on the trabeculum ashwork, which I think is crucial. You know, if we look, you know, we use a lot of aqueous suppressants, beta blockers, alpha agonists, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, and they work well and they do the job. But if you look at all the studies regarding aqueous suppressants, what's one of the side effects we see? Increasing cataract formation. It's not a large number, but it's a number. Why do we see that? Because the lens needs aqueous. So if you're reducing the amount of aqueous, you're going to get more problems with the lens and probably more problems with the cornea. Now, again, that doesn't mean you shouldn't use them. It's just another side effect. So I think it's good that we continue to produce aqueous and then regulate it at the level of the of the uh, trabeculum The other new medicine is Visalta. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, you know, Visalta is uh, another excellent medicine. Um, Visalta is not considered a fixed combination. 
uh, it's considered by the FDA as a prostaglandin with a dual mechanism of action. So that's different than having two drugs in one bottle. But what it is, is it's latanoprost plus nitric oxide. So a nitric oxide moiety has been attached to the latanoprost. So you've got latanoprost increasing uveoscleral flow and nitric oxide, which, now if you know nitric oxide, nitric oxide is a very potent vasodilator but it's also a molecule that works within the trabecular meshwork to reduce resistance to outflow. It works by two channels, one of which actually happens to be the real kinase channel to uh, regulate aqueous flow. And so the nitric oxide actually increases aqueous outflow. So now we have another medicine that works at the level of the trabecular meshwork. It also works through the uveoscleral outflow. So it's a dual mechanism of action. My last question for Dr. Madonna is- Actually, um, before you, before, yeah. no, I, I think because we talked a lot about rho kinase, maybe we should just mention a bit more about bisalta and, and, and the nitric oxide piece. I think that would, that would be fair and important. Um, you know, again, the nitric oxide is regulating aqueous. Now, Bausch, Bausch and Lomb, which makes the drug, can't say this, but we can speculate that nitric oxide as a potent vasodilator might also cause increased blood flow to the optic nerve. So again, I'm not saying that for Bausch and Lomb because we don't have all of that data, but there might be speculative that there may be other effects of the nitric oxide that would be useful. And the other thing about Bisalta that I think is really important is the side effect profile is very much like latanoprost. It's almost identical to latanoprost. So we know what we get from latanoprost. We get, we get uh, you know, some hyperemia, lash length, loss of, of periorbital fat, but it's the same profile, which is important. So we can use the drug safely in patients who've been on latanoprost and know that we're not gonna get much, if any, increase in side effects from the nitric oxide. Yeah, and I use quite a bit of Isolta in my practice, and we get very few side effects. Yeah, yeah. where with 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 the row kinase inhibitors, we get we get much more side effects. But you know, it's a very powerful medication. Yeah, I mean, it's, well. it's the right medicine. Low risk benefit, right? Yep. That's it. So my last question, I want is a philosophical question. Other than lowering intraocular pressure, what do you think of some of the other causes of glaucoma or what else can patients do maybe from a more natural point of view uh, to help if they do get it not that they're not going to take their medications obviously they have to because we know that works but what are some of the other causes that I'm yeah sure you guys have thought about this yeah that's glaucoma. kind of like a holy grail type of question yeah. you now if you go back to the late 90s when the whole concept of neuroprotection was really hot um you know, we've never been able to find anything that's truly neuroprotective other than lowering intraocular pressure. Usually a better definition of neuroprotection is, you know, protecting ganglion cells in addition, outside of lowering intraocular pressure. So then the question becomes, you know, put differently, you know, I've had, you have patients who ask, well, what else can I do besides that? And it's a great question. Unfortunately, we don't have clear cut, you know, evidence from randomized clinical trials to help us answer that question. But I think there are some things. I think to me, and I just had this 
discussion with a patient yesterday. You know, I think the same things that you do for a good, healthy cardiovascular lifestyle are useful for managing glaucoma. So keep your blood pressure down, eat well, you know, get some exercise, don't smoke. I think those, you know, if you have diabetes, lower your A1C. I think those things are all incredibly useful for glaucoma. I mean, at least part of what we think glaucoma is, is a vascular thing. You know, we think about a vascular model and a mechanical model. So if we're better vascularly, I would like to think our optic nerve would be healthier. So that's kind of an easier one. Um, and there are some good studies showing that exercise is useful even in lowering intraocular pressure. There's a couple of great studies about yoga. Yeah, meditation. And mindful meditation. Yes, vitamin C, meditation. So now be helpful. you can do enough. Green tea. Uh, yeah, those are all out there. And I'm going to tell you about one study in a second. But the mindful meditation, we actually use that when we have in our elective, we have our students report on it. You know, it's mindful meditation for a fair amount of time, I think 45 minutes, which is kind of difficult for most people to do. But it has been shown to lower intraocular pressure and other inflammatory markers um, that might be associated with glaucoma. So that's kind of cool. So we know that those things are there. And then there was a recent paper that came out of Columbia in November that looked at um, vitamin B3 and pyruvate um, as, and their ability to improve individual test points on a visual field over the course of 22 months. And it showed that actual improvement in some of the visual field. Now, a very short study, these patients were given nicotinamide and pyruvate. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a, almost a proof of concept type thing that maybe some of these, now why those two, nicotinamide and pyruvate? Well, think back to your biochemistry. You know, think about pyruvate and the Krebs cycle and, and some of those sorts of things. So we do have some very good evidence that mitochondrial dysfunction is involved in glaucoma. Now, why would mitochondrial dysfunction be important? Well, think about the ganglion cells. Ganglion cells are high energy uh, cells. And so lots of mitochondria. And those mitochondria have been shown if they are dysfunctional, then these, um, that if we can support the mitochondria, we may be able to improve um, our control of glaucoma. And this was a nice um, kind of pilot study that actually showed that. It's a very interesting paper. And I know you're interested in nutrition, so if you haven't seen it, it's, uh, I think it's uh, archives uh, like November last year, Augustine Moraes as the first author. Yeah, and, and it was a, there was an epidemiologic study on fruits and vegetables. Yeah, and it, it you know, kind of makes sense, right? It's, yeah. it's not like a surprise. Just <laughs> one, one comment I do want to say is that for people that are watching that are, that are paying very close attention, you did say uh, lower your blood pressure but earlier on, we oh, said so low, blood, low blood pressure <laughs> may be a problem. So yeah. I just want to let you clarify that. Yeah, that's a, no, that's a, that's a really great point, and I'm glad you brought it up. You know, if we think about an overall cardiovascular risk profile, lowering blood pressure is good, um, and I, I would still agree with that. However, there are certain patients who, whose blood pressure goes too low, and in the context of perfusion to the optic nerve, we have to be very careful with them. 
you know, because then the, 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 if we didn't think that the flip side would be, hey, you got glaucoma, you know, blow up your blood pressure. So, you know, you won't go blind from glaucoma, but you'll have a stroke. So obviously we're playing those two off each other. But so the way I think about it is, I mean, I try, I get blood pressure on everybody. So I always know what the blood pressure is. But in patients, particularly those patients who seem to have relatively good intraocular pressure control, but continue to progress, I really look carefully at their intraocular pressure and their blood pressure. If their blood pressure is low, I'm concerned about the relationship between IOP and blood pressure during the nighttime period and the perfusion to the optic nerve. So I become concerned with either IOP spike during the higher nighttime period or them being a dipper, meaning their blood pressure goes way down during the nighttime period. So then we want to investigate whether they take their blood pressure medication if they're on it at bedtime, or maybe they're just one of those people that has very low blood pressure during the night. So yeah, I'm, I'm actually really glad that you, that you mentioned that because we have to play those two off each other. It's part of being a physician and thinking about, you know, all of the parameters. And, you know, unfortunately, it's a very complex relationship that we tend to really, you know, for lack of a better term, dumb down to blood pressure minus IOP, but it's obviously much more, much more um, uh, confounding and complicated than that. You know, we have to think about autoregulation, disorderregulation. Does the patient have disorderregulation? Primary disorderregulation, do they have an autoimmune disease? All of those things play into it. So, yeah, it's, I, I think you did. I'm glad you caught me on that because uh, it's a point well taken. Well, you know, for the people watching out there, the patients, make sure you discuss all these things with your doctor because these are very complex uh, issues and for your health and to make sure you get the proper care. I want to thank Dr. Rich Madonna for joining me today. He is an amazing wealth of information. He thank was you. amazingly generous with his time and he's always been one of my idols in the field oh, please. of eye care. And a good friend for many years. Yeah, we hadn't seen each other in quite a while, so it's been great seeing you a few times in the last few months. I only saw I only saw Dr. Gelbon open your eyes. That's right. <laughs> I had to watch the movies to see him. If so people no, want to find out more about you, how could they do that? What's that? People want to find out more about Dr. Madonna, how could they do that? Um well, the SUNY website, you know, you just put my name in, and my email is rmadonna at sunyopt.edu. I spell my name like Madonna, so it's rmadonna at sunyopt, S-U-N-Y-O-P-T dot E-D-U. And please feel free to email. Happy to chat. Well, thanks, Dr. Madonna, for joining me Dr. today. Gale, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And I hope to have you back again someday. I'd love to. This is Dr. Kerry Gelfor, Open Your Eyes. Thank you for watching. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology.
The All Eyes Visual All VRP is a portable vision testing platform that includes visual fields, acuity, color vision testing, pupillometry, and extraocular motility. The visual leverages virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and augmented technologies to enable eye care providers to test for and monitor common eye diseases. Visit alleyes.com for more information. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.